Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be back with you again to uh, continue this series of lessons that we've been working through for these last several weeks. We've entitled this series of lessons, the, the Lessons from the Forefathers, who are our forefathers. And we're looking specifically about the four patriarchal fathers in the Old Testament, but with a specific eye towards lessons that we can learn for our own lives. And so through the course of our journey so far, we've, we've seen Abraham called from his land of where he grew up with his family and, and told that he was going to go to a faraway place that God would show him. And in faith, he stepped out on a journey. He was told that he and his childless wife were going to have a, a, a boy and that this boy was going to become the son of promise who a great nation would spring from. And we saw him wait and wait and wait. But in faith, God came through and indeed he was blessed with a son. That same son then, he was asked to take up on top of a mountain and sacrifice to God. In a test that Bishop led us through last week masterfully, a wonderful lesson that I was so blessed and I know you were too as well. And today, our little boy Isaac, all grown up and here ready now to start a family of his own. Today we're going to be starting our, uh, our discussion, our study in Genesis chapter 24. And we invite you to open up in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 24. This is one of those lessons where uh, we're going to be spending a lot of time in this text. And so I would encourage you to have that there in your lap so you can follow along with us as we study this passage together. Genesis chapter 24 starts in verse 1 with this, this verse. Abraham was now old getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. Uh, a Bible commentary a writer, a, a, a Bible commentator and Christian writer, David Guzik, says this about this line. I like this. This is the short history of a long life. And fittingly it is. This is the short history of a long life. Abraham is old, getting on in years, and the Lord had blessed him in everything. But I want you to notice something with me as we, as we jump into this. Blessed him in everything is not the same as everything was a blessing. Let me say that again. Blessed him in everything is not the same as everything was a blessing. You know, he had many challenges in his life. Wouldn't you agree? In the lessons that we've uh, already had, you can see that he had heartache and he had all kinds of struggle and challenge and difficulty. His was, was a blessed life, but his was not an easy life. His was a blessed life, but his was not a carefree life. You see, this statement, he, God blessed him in everything, means that in every situation, God brought about good from the circumstances he was in. The life of Abraham is really a beautiful picture of that passage that we read so often in Romans, the 8th chapter. Romans 8.28, Paul says, God works all things together for good for those who love him. Abraham did love him. And God did bless him, but that didn't mean that his life was carefree and easy. But it did mean that his life was blessed. Back to our text, verse 2. Abraham said to his servant, the elder of his household, who managed all that he owned, Place your hand under my thigh, and I will have you swear to the Lord God of heaven and the God of earth that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I now live. But you will go to my land and my family and take a wife for my son Isaac from there. Now this, this whole rigmarole about the hand under the thigh, this was just a way that the, uh, the covenant in those days was sealed. 
when two people would come together to have a covenant, a binding contract between the two of them, this was a, an action that they would undertake. And it was saying that, that the person who uh, is taking the contract and the person who's giving the contract are in agreement, that they are bound together to have to fulfill this. The thing that's interesting about this covenant is that this would not have normally been Eleazar's job to do. Normally, a father would get a wife for his own son. But Abraham is very ancient. He's old. He's way up there in number. He's, he's been around a long time. And he really wants his son to have a wife from his ancestral homeland, which is like 900 miles away. Abraham is in no condition to make a trip of that, of that magnitude. He's, he's, he's in no shape to be able to make that kind of a travel. So he's going to send Eleazar, who's not only his servant, but his best friend, his most trusted confidant, and one time the heir of all that Abraham had. So a mission is now being formed for Eleazar to go on. Verse 5, the servant said to him, suppose the woman is unwilling to follow me back to this land. Should I have your son go back to the land that you came from? Abraham answered him. Make sure that you don't take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my native land, who spoke to me and swore to me, I will give this land to your offspring. He sent his angel before you, and you can take a wife from my son from there. If the woman is unwilling to follow, you are free from this oath to me, but don't let my son go back there. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh and swore an oath to him concerning this matter. You know, it seems reasonable to me that this woman may not be all excited about traveling off with this man that she's never met to a land that she's never even heard of to be married for the rest of her life to a guy that she has no knowledge of. This is a very reasonable concern that Eleazar has. This isn't uh, an unreasonable concern. I frankly don't think many of us would sign up for a deal like that. I know I sure wouldn't. So Eleazar draws the logical conclusion. You know, if we really want to seal this deal, Abraham... The thing we need to do is send Isaac back, this dashing young man. He's the one that could win the heart. Let me take him with me. And he says, don't. See, I think Abraham was concerned about Isaac getting back into a comfortable place with people who he would get to know and setting down his roots. You see, Abraham had boldly and faithfully, courageously stepped out into an adventure with God that he didn't know the direction he was going or how long the journey was going to take, but he did it. And Abraham's probably thinking to himself, the last thing I'm going to do is have all of that unraveled by my son going back and plopping down in the place that I left and taking from all of us the promise that God has before us. You know, he said, if the woman won't come, if the woman won't come, then you're freed from this oath. But don't let him marry a Canaanite and don't let him go back. You know, it's kind of interesting to think what he was saying right there. Because in essence, what he was saying was, God, this, uh, this is the son God gave me, Isaac. And God told me that from this son, all this nation was going to be born. And I know that it has to be from a member of my home tribe, my home place. But you know what? If she won't come, God will work it out somehow. I just want you to hear the faith in that. If she won't come... Don't let him marry a Canaanite. Don't let him go back. God will work it out somehow. And you and I look at that something, and we can think, but that doesn't even make sense, Abraham. How in the world can possibly the son of promise be the son who's going to have all these children, and, and 
he may not even get married and you just go, God will work it out. Well, you've got to remember that it wasn't that long ago that he was up on top of a mountain with that same son of promise. The same son that was going to be this father of many nations and God said, I want you to sacrifice him. And he said, okay. He said, in fact, if, if I do this, I'm sure you'll, you'll raise him from the dead. You'll bring, you will make this happen. I just want us to sit for a second in that faith. He said, God is going to make this happen. Even if it's not logically the way we would see it taking place. He's really a beautiful picture for us of faith. And his story is one that continues to bring that lesson home. We move from there to the test. Genesis chapter 24, picking up again in verse 10. The servant took ten of his master's camels and all kinds of his master's goods in hand, and he went to a place that has an A and an N and a bunch of H's in it, and I'm not even going to try to say it, to Nahor's town. And besides the fact that this name is impossible to pronounce, there's something else fascinating about this part of the story. It says that he took ten camels filled with his master's goods. I got to looking at this this week because I was just interested about this, this idea of ten camels and what, what this treasure was. And what this treasure was is this is, this is a, a, in Hebrew it's called the mehor. Uh, and it is the Hebrew word for dowry. It's the Hebrew word for the bride price. And this is a really interesting concept. When you stop and think about it, it's enormously practical. So what you've got here is you've got this young woman who's living in her father's home. And she's contributing meaningfully to that father's home. She's working every day. She's serving. She's helping take care of the family. And suddenly this woman is being taken from her home, her father's home, and placed into a new home, usually with the father-in-law at least until the young couple can get enough to get started on their own. And so suddenly this family is devoid of a contributing member. The bride price was supposed to make up for that loss. That bride price was this family saying, I know I'm taking a member of your family who's contributing, so I'll give you a treasure to make up for her, her being gone. In return, the father of the bride would then also give a gift to his daughter on her way out. Now, if the daughter was living close by, the gift was usually a field where the daughter and the new son-in-law could start growing a crop and begin to become independent. But if she was moving far away, he usually sent servants to go and live with her and to be there for her. The, the point with all this is, besides just the fact that to me it was wildly curious, and I had to understand a little bit more of what was going on. But the point with all this is that this was an enormous treasure. Ten camel loads worth. I don't know what your picture of this has always been in your mind, but in my mind I've always had this picture of Eleazar on his little dromedary. Uh, it would have actually been a bacterian, I think. It was a one-humper. But he would have been moving across there and taking this long journey and getting across there. On, and I always picture him by himself. But now I've got to suddenly change my picture because I've got him on his camel and ten camels filled with treasure. And suddenly it doesn't make sense anymore that he was by himself and come to find out as I researched that he wasn't by himself. In fact, this would have been a massive caravan. This would have been a huge entourage. It would have had armed guards. It would have had servants. It would have had camel load after camel load. Think about it. Months of food and supplies all the tents, all the, all the water that you would need for a journey like this. This would have been a massive, massive caravan, and it would have taken a long time. The journey that he would have taken was about 900 miles. 900 miles. 
A camel is not known for its speed, and so he's not going to get there in any kind of record time. In fact, normally they would travel about five hours a day. Five hours a day, you're going to take about 60 days to make this trip. It is a long, long, arduous journey, and it was not an easy one. Hot in the day, cold at night, hundreds of miles with nothing at all to see but sand, needing all the water and food and everything you need for this journey to take place. And what's so amazing to me, look in your text, between the period in verse 10 and the first word in verse 11, nothing's mentioned about this journey. I want to know all about it. I want to know what happened on this journey, but you know what? My curiosities are not met. Verse 11 starts this way. At evening, the time when the women went out to draw the water, he made the camels kneel beside a well outside the town. In the course of a period and a space, he leaves, he takes a 60-day journey, he comes to the place he finally gets to, and he's there thirsty with his camels. Interestingly, camels, another little camel fact for you, more camel facts today than you ever thought you'd know, 20 gallons at a setting is how much they're capable of drinking. So I want you to think about that. Probably 40 or 50 camels in this herd that are all in this caravan, all of which drinking 20 gallons of water. You know, just to fill, just to, it, it's, a, it's a big process just to water those camels. Verse 12, Lord God of my master Abraham, he prayed, make this happen for me today and show kindness to my master Abraham. I'm here standing at the spring where the daughters of the men of this town come out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please lower your water jug so that I may take a drink. Let her be the one who responds, drink, and I'll water your camels also. Let her be the one that you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this, I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. Eleazar left on a spiritually significant journey. He was entrusted with the responsibility of bringing home the girl who would be the wife of Isaac and the mother of this entire nation. He had a mission of enormous magnitude. But at the moment, he had thirsty camels. And that was a need that had to be met. Eleazar here shows something that I see happening over and over and over in the pages of Scripture, most notably by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ came with a spiritual mission of the greatest possible need to address the needs of humanity. And in coming to this fallen, broken world, he addressed crowd after crowd after crowd that came to him hungry and scared and sick. And despite the fact that he had the greatest, most important spiritual mission in the history of humanity, he paused and took care of their physical needs. How oftentimes we see Jesus feeding the people before feeding the people. Feeding them physically before he fed them spiritually because it said so many times he was moved with compassion. You see here Eleazar is looking at a situation of great spiritual import but of great physical need. How wise would we be in seeing our world not only from the great spiritual message that we have to give to them but of the great physical need that they have. And sharing a little bit of that compassion that Jesus had to say they're hungry. And I need to feed them. And when they're fed, they'll be in a better place to be able to hear the real purpose of my mission. What's cool is Eleazar was actually able to combine both of these in one prayer. 
He thinks to himself, I gotta, I gotta water these camels and I gotta find this wife. You know what I'll do? God, can you find me the woman by watering my camels? What a wonderful possibility. Shrewd, this guy. Now, let me quickly say to you, not every story in the Bible is designed to be a blueprint for what we're supposed to do. Not every story in the Bible is designed to be a blueprint for what we're supposed to do. The story of David and Goliath is inspiring, but it doesn't mean that we're supposed to grab a slingshot and go out to battle. The story of Elijah on Mount Carmel calling down that fire on his altar is a beautiful story, but that doesn't mean that we should put God to the test in that way. And those aren't my words, those are Jesus' words. When he said, don't test the Lord your God. You see, this was a situation that was unique to this circumstance and moment. So it's not the blueprint, but it's a principle. It's the kind of thing we should be praying for, not in the way that we should be praying it. So there's the test. God, i got to find this woman, and the woman I want is the one that you are going to send to me who will give not only me a drink, but also water my camels. Let's see how the work transpires. Before he had even finished speaking his prayer, there was Rebecca daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife uh, of Abraham's brother Nahor, coming with a jug on her shoulder. Now the girl was very beautiful and a virgin. No man had ever been intimate with her. She went down to the spring and she filled her jug and she came back up. The servant ran to meet her and said, please let me have a little water from your jug. She replied, drink my lord. Quickly lowered the jug to her hand and gave him a drink. And when he had finished drinking, she said, I'll also draw water for your camels until they have had enough to drink. So she quickly emptied her jug into the trough and hurried to the well again to draw water. And she drew water for all of his camels, while the man silently watched her to see whether or not the Lord had made his journey a success. Again, here I have a picture in my mind of what this looks like. Maybe you do too. And in my mind, the picture I have is Eleazar, withered and weathered and beaten down and and, and frail from 60 days out in the wilderness is there with his camel and needs this woman to help him pour this water. Well, the reality is he probably had a hundred or more militarily trained young men that were very fit and very strong, very capable of watering these camels. You see, this wasn't out of need. This was out of test. He could have clearly had his men water the camels. But he wanted to allow God to show his might in this moment and answer his prayer. It's also interesting that she was beautiful. You know, out of all the thousands of years that are covered in scriptural history, there's only a handful of women. Sarah, Rachel, Abigail, Bathsheba, Tamar, Vashti, and Esther, who are called beautiful. But she's among them. What's interesting not only is her beauty, but the fact that she was noble. She was of a noble-born family. She was a wealthy, powerful uh, daughter of a wealthy and powerful man. She had no business doing this. This was the work of low servants. This certainly wasn't the work of a noble woman. To draw her own water, let alone the water for some stranger and all of his 30 or 40 camels. You see, what really made her beautiful was not just her physical beauty, which was great, but what won the beauty contest was her servant's heart, her ability and willingness to do exactly what it was that God would, would, would drive her to do. Her servant heart was her most beautiful 
quality. One more thing I'll say about this section, and that is that he waited silently to see if God would answer his prayer. Just this morning in Bible class, CJ and I were talking about patience and the fact that I don't have a lot of it. It's hard for me to wait. It's hard for me to wait in prayer, and it is impossible for me to wait silently. It's impossible for me to do anything silently. He, he waited in silence. And you know, I think one of the hardest parts about prayer is waiting in silence to see if God will answer your prayer. Let me draw your attention to a passage. We don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Jeremiah wrote in, in Lamentations chapter 3. He writes this beautiful passage. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good for the person who waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. Jeremiah in this passage talks about the ability to wait on God, to trust in God, to trust in his timing, to be sure that he'll answer our prayers. But what gives Jeremiah that ability? What gives a person the ability to wait on God? Right here in this passage he tells us. Because look at what's book-ended. In the middle is hope, wait, seek, wait, silent. But on one end, we have a promise here that the Lord is my portion. And on the back end, we have this promise the salvation comes from the Lord. You see, these are words of relationship. These are words of relationship. So the question is, who is the person who can wait? Who is the person who can trust? Who is the person who can know God's timing is perfect and his prayers come perfectly answered? Who's the person that can do that? The person who has the relationship. The person who has the relationship with God. Let me just ask you a second. How well do you wait in prayer? And what does that say about your relationship with God? How well do I wait in prayer? What does that say about my relationship with God? You see, the one who can wait is the one who has a strong relationship. And Eleazar proves just that. But Rebecca proves good on the wait. I don't know how long the journey, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know how long the, the, the watering would have taken. I don't know how long it would have taken to carry 20 gallons of water for 30 camels. That's a lot of water. But I know it must have been a long, hot, arduous task. It's one thing to want to serve. It's another thing to do it. It's one thing to start to serve. It's another thing to complete it. And that really is the challenge. A servant's hands and heart are more important than a servant's intention and talk. And she set her hands to the work. And her heart kept her diligently engaged until it was all the way done. And that brought success. 22 says, As the camels finished drinking, the man took the gold ring weighing half a shekel for her wrists, two bracelets weighing ten shekels of gold. Whose daughter are you? Please tell me. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she answered, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, who she bore to Nahor. She also said, We have plenty of straw and feed and a place to spend the night. Then the man knelt low, worshipped the Lord. Notice that. Worshipped the Lord. And said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not withheld his kindness and faithfulness from my master. As for me, 
the Lord has led me on the journey to the house of my master's relatives. You know, this is him recognizing and realizing that his mission has been a success. He realizes at this point, you know, everything that I've endured, all the challenges that I've faced, all the difficulties have all come to be. And God has been with me every moment, and God is with me right here in this moment. And he's bringing about this fulfillment to this promise, this expectation that I placed on him. And how great is his praise. How great is his thanks. How wonderful his gratitude. You ever ask God for something and had him answer it? We all have. What was our response? I'm reminded of the story that Jesus, the story of Jesus and his interaction with ten men that had leprosy. Ten men came to him with leprosy and he healed them. As they went on their way, they were healed. And of the ten that were healed of leprosy, one ran back to Jesus, fell down at his face, and, 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 and praised him, thanked him. And you can almost hear the heartbreak in Jesus' voice as he looks down at this one penitent, thankful person and he says, where are the nine? And I wonder how many times I ask something of God, he answers it, and he looks at me and says, where is the thanks? You see, Eleazar was not guilty of that. His was not a void of gratitude. His was an overwhelming response of gratitude. But you know, all too often with my own prayers, I say, God, please. God says, I will. And my next response is, good, God, can you do this also? I've got my next request ready. I've got my next need in front of me. I've got my next request right here, queued up and ready to go. And I wonder how often he says, where's the thanks? 28 continues, the girl ran and told her mother's household about all these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother named Laban, and Laban ran out to the man at the spring, and as soon as he had seen the ring and the bracelets on his sister's wrists, and when he had heard his sister Rebecca's words, this man said, said this to me. He went to the man. He was standing there by the camels at the spring. Laban said, come, you who are blessed by the Lord, why are you standing out here? I've prepared the house, and I have a place for the camels. So the man came to the house, and the camels were unloaded. Straw and feed were given to the camels, and water was brought to wash his feet and the feet of the men with him. And a meal was set before him. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. This is a guy who spent 60 days or more in the wilderness under who knows what kind of conditions. And he's sitting in front of a banquet of food. And he says, no. You see, I didn't travel 900 miles to eat a meal. I traveled 900 miles to fulfill a mission. I'm not going to enjoy this until I get to that. He must have been famished. And you can't tell me that the idea of a great home-cooked meal wasn't enormously appealing at that moment. But here's the point. His comfort was not as important in that moment as his mission. Charles Spurgeon says this about this verse. I think he does it so well. Like every true servant of Christ, he put his master's business before his own ease and comfort. When a man begins to think more of his eating than he does of his doing the will of God, he ceases to be a true-hearted minister. So what about that lesson? What does that say to you and I? Are we true-hearted or are we lackluster? What really is most important, our own comfort or the purposes of God? What's truly the thing that drives us the most, our service to him or our own comfort for self? 
Because, see, God's service says give. And personal comfort says receive. God's service says serve. But personal comfort says be served. God's service says put others first. Personal comfort says put yourself first. God's service says be humble. Personal comfort says find fame, popularity. And so it just got me thinking, how is this man have this kind of focus and, and this kind of integrity and this kind of intensity about his mission? How is it that he can put aside even the wonders of this glorious meal from his growling stomach until he accomplishes what he came to do? And I think the secret might be found in a phrase that's found more than 20 times in this chapter. A little bitty two-word phrase. More than 20 times in this chapter, we read the words, My master. Eleazar, speaking of Abraham, says, My master. More than 20 times. And I think that's something that kept Eleazar on track and on focus. Because it was never about him. It was always about his master. He lived out that saying of being selfless. C.S. Lewis said that being selfless doesn't mean you think less of yourself. You don't think you're lower or unworthy or, or stupid. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And I think that's really what we see with Eleazar. He was thinking less of his own comforts and more of his master. What does that say to me? What does that say to you about our mission? What does that say to me and you about our purpose in life? If we're not intense, if we're not integrous, and if we're not focused on our mission in life when it comes to our purpose for being here, what does it say about who really is our master? Well, heading for home they go, and you'll be disappointed to learn that the journey home is given as much detail as the journey there. At least I was disappointed to learn. 50 starts, Laban and Bethuel answered, this is from the Lord. We have no choice in this matter. Rebecca is here in front of, her, in front of you. Take her and go. Let her be a wife for your master's son, just as the Lord has spoken. When Abraham's servants heard these words, they bowed to the ground before the Lord. Then he brought out the objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah, and he gave precious gifts to her brother and her mother. Then he and the men who with him ate and drank and spent the night. And when they got up in the morning, he said, Send me to my master. But her brother and mother said, Let the girl stay with us for about ten days. Then she can go. But he responded to them, Do not delay me. Since the Lord has made my journey a success, send me away so that I may go to, here it is again, my master. So they said, let's call the girl and ask her opinion. They called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she replied, I will go. So they sent away their sister Rebecca with the one who had nursed and raised her and Abraham's servant and his men. They blessed Rebecca, saying to her, our sister May you become thousands upon ten thousands and may your offspring possess the city gates of their enemies. And Rebecca and her female servants got up, mounted the camels, and followed the man. So the servant took Rebecca and left. You know, these uh, gifts once again show up. We've been carrying them now for 900 miles. It's probably good that they finally got delivered. Uh, Joe, Joe Howell was here earlier 
IKEA, Joe, there you are, the, the, the first FedEx package right here. Um, and so the, the package was finally delivered, and for good reason. But when we think about this, the gifts that he received, that she received in that moment were great. But they paled in comparison to the gifts of a lifetime with Isaac. The gifts at the moment were great. But they were only a small pretense. They were a small precursor. They were, they were a small appetizer for the banquet that would come. And you know, this is always the way God's gifts work. God's gifts continue to work this way because the gifts that we receive in the moment are only examples of and a foretaste of the greater gifts to come. And at the moment of our baptism, we're given a beautiful gift, many beautiful gifts, forgiveness of our sins, right standing with God, to, to see our former life washed away and our, our new life before us, the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in us and with us. But as great as these gifts are, they're only samples. They're only the beginning. Because the gifts we receive at that moment pale in comparison to, the, to a life of being in relationship with God. You see, the gifts of Rebecca's moment paled compared to the gift of a relationship with Isaac. The gift that we receive at baptism, as beautiful it is, is only a precursor for the beautiful gifts of an eternity with his son. Last in this, Let's look at this urgency real quickly. He's desperate to get back. He wants to get back so fast and so bad. He's traveled 60 days. He's willing to spend one night to spend 60 more days because all he can think about is getting back to his master. You know what I would suggest to you? The ones who are the most diligent, the ones who are most anxious to get back to their master are the ones who are most diligent to perform the master's service in the first place. Think about John the Apostle. The one whom Jesus loved, who said, hurry, Lord Jesus, come back. What about Paul the Apostle, who dedicated his whole life, his whole adult life to, to serving God, who said, you know what, to die is gain. I, I want to be back with the Lord. I want to I leave this place because I want to be with him. Those who are the most diligent to perform his duty are the ones who are most anxious to get back to his side. How anxious are we? How anxious are we for the Lord? And what does that say for us? What does that say about our service to him? We'll close with the wedding. And again, not a lot of detail that I would like. Verse 62, Isaac was returning from another big name. And he was living at that time in the Negev region. And in the early evening, Isaac went out to meditate in the field. And looking up, he saw camels coming, and Rebekah looked up, and when she saw Isaac, she got down from her camel, and she asked the servant, Who is that man in the field coming to meet us? And the servant answered, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac everything that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother Sarah, and took Rebekah to be his wife, and Isaac loved her, and he was comforted after his mother's death. You know, it's interesting, for the first time really in this story, we see Isaac. The whole story's been about Isaac, but Isaac's been no part of the story. Isaac's been the recipient of this, but he's not been anywhere involved in this story whatsoever. Well, but then again, I disagree. I think Isaac's actually had a really, really important part of this story. Now, he didn't face the dangers of the road. He didn't face the hot days and the cold nights and the travel. But you know what he did do was something very significant. You see, Isaac was the recipient of all the work that Eleazar and the men had done. 
all of their hardship, all of their trouble, all of their difficulties. Isaac received the blessing that was born on their backs. And you and I today are a lot like Isaac. Because you and I today as Christians receive the benefits and the blessings that comes on the backs of so many that preceded us. Who faced imprisonments and persecutions and hatred. So that we could enjoy the blessings of Christianity that we have today. Not only that. Isaac, a latecomer to our story, has actually been a member of the team the whole time. And you think, how, how am I getting that out of this one little passage? Well, let's look back at it. Isaac went out in the field to meditate. That's what he did. But he did it. He did it well. Now let me tell you why I think this is important. Why that field? Why would he go out in that field? Because he knew that was the direction from which they would be coming. They're going to be coming from this direction, and so when they're coming this way, I want to be there to greet them. Why at night? Because he knew that logically, if they get close enough to push through past a, a normal five-hour delay, a normal five-hour travel, they're going to do it. The most likely time for them to arrive would be in the evening, because they would have made an extra push that day to get done and not spend another night camping. So he was in the right place, he was at the right time, and what was he doing? He was talking to God about the success of the trip. He was talking to God every single day about the success of the trip. He wasn't out there on the trip himself, but he was such an important part of it. Eleazar was the person to go in person. Isaac was the person chosen to support it in prayer. Here's the thought. You may not be called to preach the gospel to some far-flung place, but you are called to pray for the ones that do. You are called to preach to share, to teach, and to be an example to those that are around you, your friends and family and neighbors. And others are called to be your prayer support. Whatever your place is, let no one look down on its importance or underestimate its value. If your place is to go, then go. If your place is to pray, then pray. And they're all necessary for the success of a mission. We'll close with a comparison a comparison of Isaac, Rebecca, Jesus, and the church. We're a lot like Rebecca. We were chosen for a bridegroom before we ever knew it. We were chosen for a bridegroom before we ever knew it. Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed is the Lord God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings. He chose us before the foundation of the world. We're a lot like Rebecca because we were necessary for God's plan to be accomplished. Ephesians 3, this is all according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're like Rebecca because we've been chosen to share in the riches that the father bestows on his son. Everything that was Abraham's was Isaac's. Everything that was Isaac's was Rebecca's. And in the same way, everything that's God is ours. John 17, I've given them the glory you, God, have given me so that they may be one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be one complete that the world may know that you have loved them as you loved me. We're all like Rebecca. We had to leave everything to be with the Son. Matthew 19, Jesus said, Whoever's left mothers and brothers and fathers and houses and everything for my sake will have a reward many times over. And finally, we're loved and cared for by the Son. Romans 5, God proves his own love for us. That while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. But you know what? Rebecca could have said no. Eleazar didn't kidnap Rebecca. 
Didn't kidnap her and drag her off. He invited her to have a relationship with the son. And in the same way, we continue to invite people to have a relationship with the son. So this morning, I'm just going to leave it with that. If we can help you in any way with your walk with Jesus, or if you have never taken the first step in your journey with Jesus, we want you to know the invitation is before you, and we're ready to help in any way that we can. If you'd let that be known as we stand and sing.